Thank you, Gordon and Barbara, for our music this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream. We're glad that you are with us today. March 20th, the first day of spring, a beautiful day here. We're in Philippians chapter 2 for our fourth message in uh, this chapter, beginning in verse 12. And I titled this, of course, Working Out Your Salvation, because these verses say that in verse 12, we are to work out our own salvation. Verse 13, because it's God who works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. In verses 1 through 4 of this chapter, in chapter 2, Paul admonished us to have the mind of Christ, to be like Christ. Then he took some verses after that, and we took it in two messages, but verses 5 through 11, that is the mind of Christ. He explained to us what the mind of Christ is and was. And so now, for a few verses after that, he's going to say, all right, put it to work. Work out the mind of Christ in you the way it should be. So the subject really in these verses that we're looking at this morning is the doctrine of sanctification, the fact that we as the children of God should walk like Christ walked. We should think as he did. If, if you are saved, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are a saint, whether you always feel like it or not. Uh, you are a saint. And that word saint is the same root word for the word sanctification. A saint is a hagios, sanctified is hagiosmos. So sanctification is simply the life of a believer, uh, the life that Jesus walked. As much as we can, uh, we ought to be as he was. So the therefore in verse 12 uh, tells us that's what we ought to do. Now, a saint means that we're set apart. Literally, that word means God has saved us and set us apart for his own. We are his own possession. And remember that God himself is set apart, right? I mean, God is holy. And though he created this world and he has a lot to do with this world, he is untouched by its sinfulness. And so he is set apart, and if we are his children, if we are his saints, then we ought to be set apart as well. And that's what these verses talk about. And when we talk about sanctification, uh, there are a lot of various views on this. As a matter of fact, it makes a lot of people nervous when we get to this kind of a, a subject and talk about a big word like sanctification. It sounds so pious and all the rest, and it is. Well, we find a lot of people saying things about it. For example, some would say, you know, to, to be sanctified, you're, you're just too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. Uh, you know, you, you can't be too sanctified because God can't use you. Of course, the fact is, just the opposite is true. God can't use you until you are heavenly-minded. Some people would say, you can't relate to your culture if you're too sanctified. You know, that they can't understand you and you have no effect on them. But I ask you, does salt taste the same as the food? And if it does, why put it on there? You know, does light, is it the same as darkness? No, that's why you turn on the light. We are salt and light in this world. We're not the same as this culture, and that's why we affect it in a good way. Some will say, well, you can't win the world unless you're like the world. But again, I say, you win them with or to what you win them with. 
Uh, if you're going to win the world by being the world, then you're not winning them to anything. So some would even go so far as to say it's impossible for believers to sin anyway since our sin is always forgiven past, present, and future, so it doesn't matter. Have you heard that? You know, don't worry about it. Uh, the blood of Christ covers all of your sin, so just be whatever you need to be or want to be, and that's the way it is. But the problem with that in a technical term is you're mixing justification for sanctification. When we're justified, yes, our sins are forgiven past, present, and future. But when we talk of sanctification, especially progressive sanctification, that is the sanctification in our life, that's what these verses are talking about, uh, then uh, we do have sin and we have to avoid it as believers. Now, sanctification, as we will see, especially in these first two verses, is a cooperative effort between you and the Lord. You can't do sanctification all by yourself. If you do, it really is what we call legalism. If you try to do it without the Lord's help, you're just doing your work, not God's work. But the fact is, too, that the Lord has chosen not to do it without you so that the work of God in this world needs us, and he wants us to do that work as he works through us. You might picture it as, as a car and gasoline. You know, we're the car, we're the vehicle, God is the gasoline. Uh, a car is great, and you need the car to go places and to do things, but if you don't put gas in it, guess what? It's kind of a hard tent. You may be able to live in it, but you can't do anything else with it. A car needs gasoline, it needs power, it needs something to make it go forward. And you have to have Christ in you, working in you, uh, if you're going to be of use to him. So let's look at these verses. You notice that I have four thoughts from these verses, uh, and uh, I think you can follow as we go along. First of all, in the first two verses, there are some words about our work and then about God's work. So again, verse 12, Therefore, in light of all of these things that have been said about our mind being like Christ, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He puts that word obeyed right up front because sanctification has to do with obedience. God gives his word, we follow his word. God has told us things in his word, what he wants us to do, we do it. There you go. Sanctification is that easy. He tells us, he empowers us, we do it. Now, notice, of course, that Paul has two things to say to this Philippian church, which he loved very much. And that is, when I was with you and you were under my supervision, you were immature. And it is necessary for saints who are immature to have some immediate oversight over them. So he says, not in my presence only. You have to go back to Acts chapter 16. You go back to that time when Paul entered into Philippi uh, and uh, he started preaching. And you remember he, he, he uh, converted Lydia, 
who was in a Bible study with a bunch of other ladies down by the riverside, and all of them lost, didn't even know the gospel, didn't know the Lord. He brought them the Lord. And so Lydia gets saved, and, and, and then there's a demon-possessed woman that he delivers from the demons, and maybe she was converted too. We know the Philippian jailer was converted. And so here's this church with a lot of new converts. Of course, no one else had heard the gospel in Philippi or Macedonia. And so for a time, he had to stay there and he had to teach them. They were young believers who just didn't know. And all of us started out that way, didn't we? All of us started out as new believers, not knowing a whole lot. Boy, we needed to learn. We needed somebody to show us. Imagine having the Apostle Paul show you that. That would be great, wouldn't it? And so when you were under my supervision, uh, you walked this way. You needed to walk. I showed you how to walk. And by the way, he even showed them how to suffer, didn't he, when he and Silas were in that Philippian jail. Well, then... You have to go to Acts 28 for the next statement, not in my presence only, but in my absence. Now in Acts 28, he's under house arrest in Rome, a long way from Philippi, and they have to go it on their own now. They're, they're a church that uh, has their own leadership, and, and the apostle is gone, and he can't come back. And this is necessary for maturity, just as supervision is necessary for immaturity, then the lack of supervision is necessary for maturity. Somewhere you have to grow up. Somewhere you have to say, I can do this, and I don't have to have somebody standing over my shoulder all the time directing everything that I do. I hope that we all are like that as we grow in the Lord. We don't have to have somebody watching us, do we, in order to do right? Uh, even when no one's watching, except the Lord, of course, He's always watching, then, uh, then do right. You know, there's a, uh, a little uh, five-step thing that I reviewed with somebody this week. It's actually the five steps of parenting. Now, you, you know what it's like when you have little children who need you at every moment. So the five steps of parenting kind of go like this. It, uh, they all begin with C. First, you're a caregiver. I mean, that little baby, that little infant just needs you. You can't, you can't get away, and, and he or she needs you all the time. You go from that to commander when they're little toddlers. Now, do this. Sit here. Time to do this. Go to bed. Clean up, you know, whatever it is. You go from that to coaching when they're teenagers and in their middle years, about coaching them how to do and what to do and so forth. Then you go to counselor when they move away, and finally at the end of your life, you're just the consultant. <laughs> but you know what? You go from hands-on control to just influence. And uh, for those of us who have gone through most of those stages uh, you know, we want, don't we? We want our children to be at a place where we can let go and we can be the consultant and we know they're serving the Lord and doing right. Well, that's what Paul basically is saying to this church. I was the caregiver and the commander for a while, but now I'm the counselor, the consultant. I trust that you can do these things. I hope that we can in our Christian life. Now, the third thought under our work is sanctification, of course. So he says, work out your own salvation. Now, I assume that we know what he means by this. We should know by now, of course, that you were not saved by works. 
that works in order to get saved uh, are not what you should do. You can't get saved by your good works, but that after you are saved, you are saved for good works. You're saved to do these. So let me remind you of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for example. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You know that. That not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. In other words, you can't work for your salvation. You didn't work for your salvation. Then he says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So now that you're saved, you have good work to do. You have works that need to be done. Work out your own salvation. Let me read Titus 3.8. This is a faithful saying. These things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. So you believed without works. Now you are to maintain good works. This word, by the way, remember, is the word ergon. You know, we, we have that term ergonomics these days, you know, how you go about working and, and so forth. That's the word here, and it means hard work. This, this idea of sanctification isn't easy. It's not easy to resist the devil. It's not easy to resist temptation. It's not easy to do the work uh, that you're supposed to do before God. And you have to keep a right balance, folks, because you can get too much of yourself or not enough of yourself. Too much of yourself is what we call legalism. I, I can do it all. I don't even need God's help. I never pray. I don't need to read the Bible. I just, you know, I know what to do. And you'll find yourself working for yourself. And that's about all. But then you, the license end of it, the other end of the spectrum is, I won't worry about it. God will do everything. You know, I'll just uh, sail along uh, uh, and trust him for everything. No, God needs you too. So it's that balance between doing what you need to do and trusting God to be able to do those things too. Remember I said this is a, this is a co-op. As a matter of fact, now uh, remember that uh, that word ergon, which means hard work, in verse 13, it's God who works in you, is the word energes or energy. So you have the work to do, but God gives you the energy to do it kind of like your body and spirit. You have a body, but you need a soul inside it to make it go. And you need God inside you to make this. Think of a simple statements in, in the scripture. Ask and you shall receive. There's your work, asking. There's God's work, receiving. What happens if you don't ask? <laughs> you don't receive. It's, it's a co-op. Seek and you shall find. Your work is to seek his work is to let you find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Your work is to knock. His work is to open the door. Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Your work is to come and put your uh, head to the yoke with him. He gives you rest. Constantly we find this cooperative sanctification throughout the Scripture, if we just notice it, that God wants us to do the things that we're to do. He'll do the things that he has to do. So that's our work. Uh, it's not easy. It's hard work. Uh, but we're commanded to do these things in Scripture. Secondly, then, there's God's work in it. So verse 13 says, we can do this because 
It's God who works in you. Okay, here's God's work. He, he works while you work. That's the cooperation. God works in. Again, the word energes or energy is that you do the work physically. God gives you the energy to get it done. God works inside you to work. Isn't that a great promise? Aren't, aren't you glad when you try to work for the Lord, uh, the Lord is invisible? You don't see him. The Holy Spirit is working. You don't see the Holy Spirit, but you have that confidence all the time that that energy of God, that spirit of God is in you doing this kind of work. So uh, he's working out. You're working in. Uh, uh, you're working out, and he's working in you to do these things. Notice these two statements, to will and to do. Why do we have those short statements? Let me propose this. To will speaks of God's sovereignty, whereas to do speaks of his providence. God has a will for you. God knows what he wants you to do and what he wants you to accomplish. And if you follow him and do your part, he will do his part and it will work out for you. To do it then is God's providence. You say, Lord, I, I don't think you can do this. Oh, yes, he can. Lord, I don't, I don't think this can, this can get accomplished. Of course it can get accomplished. He has the will and he has the doing power to do it. Not only the sovereignty, but also the providence. So remember these uh, simple statements in the scripture. Here's Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this very thing, he which has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. He has a will. And he can do it. 1 Corinthians 1.8, who also will confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.24, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. So he has a will and he has the ability to do. I want you to stop and notice something else in verse 13. I wrote down six attributes of God Six things about God in this little verse here. I guess I could have just preached on this verse and had six points to the sermon. Here they are. First of all, there's God's person. It is God who works. God is a person. God is real. He works in you. Secondly, is God's energy who works. In other words, that energes, that energy in you. Thirdly, is God's eminence, I-M-M-A-N-C-E. His eminence is he's in you. God dwells in you. Through his Holy Spirit, he lives in you. Fourthly is God's sovereignty, that is to will. Fifthly is God's providence, that is to do. And then sixthly, God's glory, to do his good pleasure, what he wants to do in you. Six things about God in this one little verse because God is working as we are working in all of his attributes and all of his goodness toward you. Let me tell you this too. God's plan for you can be changed. And it's usually changed by you. It's changed when we don't follow his will. It's changed when we decide not to follow his word. And God takes plan B. Well, that's okay. He can do it. He can change the plan. 
I think in Romans 12, 2, where he says, you offer yourself a living sacrifice so that you know what is that good, acceptable, and even the perfect will of God. Uh, God wants you to have that perfect will, and he knows what it is. And if you will live for him and do what he wants you to do, you'll find that perfect will. Sometimes we get off the track, don't we? Sometimes we're not exactly where we ought to be. And uh, God changes the plan, and yet he still works, and he still accomplishes those things. But maybe we could have done better. That sounds humanistic, but I think it's exactly what the Bible is saying here. So let's stay on track. Let's give everything to God. Let's devote our whole selves to God. And wherever we are at this time, you may look back in your life and say, well, I made that mistake, and I made that mistake, so I guess, you know, God doesn't have much for me to do. From now on, he has everything for you to do. From now on, he can work that perfect will in your life. So do it from now on, I say. All right, our work, God's work. Thirdly and fourthly, then, we do this work on earth and we do this work in heaven. So, verse, uh, n- notice uh, uh, number three, by the way, on the earth. I go from verse 14 halfway through verse 16. So as we read these verses again, here's what I want you to do. Notice that I have two subpoints here. We are children of God and we are lights in the world. So as you read a lot of stuff in these verses, there are basically two things here that we need to grasp. And that is that we are two things while we're on this earth. While we have time to serve God, while we have time to live a sanctified life, there are two things you need to catch. So look for them as we read these verses. Verse 14, do all things without murmuring and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. So you saw those two things, right? One is that we are children of God. The other is that we are lights in the world. So as children of God, what does he say to us? Well, these things, do, do everything without murmuring and complaining. <laughs> you say, well, I already got an F in that uh, category. Let's go on to the next one. Well, we, we do that. We're, we're human. But let me point out these things. I think murmuring is more the inward character and the complaining is the outward character. We do a lot of murmuring among ourselves. I don't know about you, but I've just read in my Old Testament Bible reading, uh, we started Deuteronomy last night, if you're still on the same schedule I'm on. Well, you know, through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, there's a lot of murmuring going on. And God God really uh, took it out on those Israelites for murmuring. We get kind of murmuring that way about things, don't we? And sometimes even within ourselves. But complaining is the outward part. Complaining is the doing the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing, having the wrong kind of attitude. Doing everything without murmuring and complaining. My little note in my Bible says grumbling. That's a good word. Do it without grumbling. And then secondly, blameless and harmless. Blameless and harmless. What are those two words direct? One is to be blameless is inwardly and harmless is outwardly. So you ought to be a blameless person 
one who uh, no one has something to blame you for. No one has something to say against you. If you follow that word blameless throughout the New Testament, you'll find it a number of times. Uh, not only for the leaders of the church, uh, for officers in the church, but for everyone in the church, we are to be blameless. Let's not let our lives be a, a reproach uh, that the world can criticize God and His work because of us. The other is to be harmless. Let's not be that way. Let's make sure we're harmless as doves, wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And then the last uh, description of the, of the child of God is without fault or without rebuke. In other words, I think in all of our body, soul, and spirit, everything about us, let's make sure it's without fault. I looked that word up. I look a lot of words up, but I looked look that word up. And you know how that word is, is translated or how it's used in the New Testament? It's the word that often describes the sacrificial lambs of the Old Testament sacrifices that are sometimes described as without spot and in other places without blemish. Remember that when, we, we, when they would bring a sacrifice before the Lord and bring that lamb or that bullock or whatever it was, God said, you bring me the best. You bring me something without spot and without blemish. I don't want lame uh, animals to be brought to my sacrifice. And so what are we to be? We're to be without spot. We're to be blameless, presenting ourselves as living sacrifices to God. So without fault, he says here at the end, uh, that's what we should be. Isn't it great to be born into a family, born, born into God's family? Can you imagine that? When you, when you understand who God is and how He existed from all eternity and how holy He is, that we can call Him Father, and even as Paul says, we can call Him Daddy, Abba, Father, we're under His care, we call Him Father, and He calls us His child, His son, His daughter, as it were. That, that's an amazing thing. You carry His name when you claim to be a Christian. And carrying that name means a lot. I remember when I was a kid, I got in trouble once. And uh, I got in trouble with some other kids uh, in, a, in a public place downtown, the little town Oxford, Ohio, where I grew up. And uh, this store owner, where we were kind of acting up, uh, called us aside. And uh, he says, what is your name? And I gave him my name. And you know what he said? I know your parents. <laughs> Well, of course, he knew my parents. Everybody in town knew, knows my parents. And I thought to myself, uh-oh, this is my parents' name I put in trouble here. You know, there, I, I remember a story about Alexander the Great when a soldier wasn't doing the right thing, and he was brought before Alexander, and, and Alexander the Great says, son, what's your name? And the soldier said, my name's Alexander. And he said, well, either change your name or change your ways. <laughs> well, we carry the name Christian. We carry God's name on this earth. We are children of God. Let's, let's change. We can't change our name. Let's change our ways, all right? So the second thing on this earth that we are, in these verses anyway, is the light of the world. We're, we're, we're the light uh, that this world needs. Let me read you a few statements. Ephesians 5, 8. You were once darkness, 
but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. And 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in your hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We're like an uh, incandescent light bulb. You know, we have a very thin covering so that what's inside us can shine through us and create light. And He is in us, and we are lights in this world. Now notice in the long verse that we read here, a few things about ourselves as lights. First of all, we're in the midst of the world. So you see that we're without fault, notice, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. When Peter was preaching at the day of Pentecost, which would have been uh, you know, about 20 to 30 years before this, he said, save yourselves from this perverse, this untoward generation. Does anyone want to say that the generation that we live in is not crooked and perverse? Uh, it's just unbelievable, isn't it? It's unbelievable every time we turn on the news, every time we read something, every time we hear something, how crooked and perverse that the, that the culture is these days. It ought to offend us. Uh, you know, Lot, even in Sodom and Gomorrah, it, it vexed his righteous soul from day to day to hear the things that he heard. And that's the way we feel in this world that we're in too. But notice we're in the midst of it. So you know that statement, we are in the world, but we are not what? Of the world. So we are in the midst of this world, and then secondly, among whom you shine. That is, we are not of the world. We're in it, in a crooked and perverse generation. But among that, we shine. We're lights in this world. I want you to to look at, if you can, or let me read 1 Corinthians 5.9. In 1 Corinthians 5.9, you have that chapter where there was immorality going on in the Corinthian church, and Paul is instructing that church how to handle that and what to do. And I want you to notice uh, some specific wording in 1 Corinthians 5.9. He says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Now, you see that expression, keep company with? There's a unique word that's going to be used twice here. It, it would be defined to associate intimately with, to do what they do, to be like them, to associate intimately. Let me read it again. I wrote to you in my epistle not to associate intimately with sexually immoral people. Well, what is he saying? Don't be sexually immoral. And by the way, there's enough of that going on in this culture that we live in. Then notice, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral of this world, and I have parentheses, at all. I did not mean 
to not be in the world, you have to be. So he goes on to say, or with covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Well, praise the Lord, someday we'll go out of the world. Someday we'll be where, where the Lord is and things will be fine. But until then, don't associate intimately with people. But I don't mean go up on a hillside somewhere and live the rest of your world as a stylite monk or something like that. But notice then what he says in verse 11. But now I have written to you not to, here's our expression again, associate intimately with anyone, even named a brother, who is sexually immoral. What is he saying to this church who's struggling with these issues about sexual impurity going on, even in the church? You be in the world, but don't you be of the world. You have to live among people, but don't be intimately involved in things that they do. That is not what a Christian does. And so we can be in the world, but not of the world. Again, salt and light. Salt is in the food, but it's not of the food, because if it's of the food, it does no good to put it there. Light and darkness. Light can shine in the darkness, but it's not the same as the darkness. And that's the way we are in this world. Then the third expression about lights in the world I take from the beginning of verse 16 as kind of a continuation of that thought, holding fast the word of life. And so, as lights in the world, we have a lantern. We have a light to hold on to. If I go back to John 1, 4 and 5, where you have that great passage of Jesus being the light of the world, it says, in him was life, L-I-F-E, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. And so we have this lantern that we hold the word of life. Notice, that's the word of life. I guess there are a lot of lights in this world. There are a lot of people offering a lot of philosophies in this world, a lot of religions in this world, but they don't have life in them. This light has life. And so you hold forth that word of God. It's not your words. It's not your wisdom. It's not just your philosophy. This is the word of God. And that's what we hold forth. So on this earth, we are children of God. We are lights in the world. And then our last thought, what about in heaven? And, and interestingly, Paul then directs our thoughts to when it's all said and done. Notice the so that... I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. That's why I have the two thoughts. One is to rejoice, and one is I don't want to have regrets in the day of Christ. What is the day of Christ? That's the, what we call the rapture of the church, the next thing that will happen in biblical prophecy. And in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, he comes and he snatches us away. And you know what the first thing we do is? We go to the Bema seat of Christ. We go to the judgment seat of Christ, and there we receive those things done in the body. Hopefully, they are gold, silver, and precious stone. But if they have not been uh, uh, worthwhile, if we have not worked for him, there's simply wood, hay, and stubble. I want to rejoice in the day of Christ. 
I want, I want the Philippian church to be something that I rejoice over, something that I receive gold, silver, and precious stone over. I want you to live for Christ and serve him long after I'm gone, he says, in the day of Christ. Uh, be sure that you do this. And then the second that is that I don't have to regret what I've done. That I don't have to look back and say, gee, I wish I'd have done it a different way so that I'd have a reward for it. I want reward for it. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, the Lord planned it that way. He planned it so that we can receive rewards for our, uh, for our sanctification, rewards for what we do for the Lord. And not, re not wood, hay, and stubble or regret to say, well, I guess that was all worthless. We don't want to be like that when we stand before the Lord. So here at the end, and it's not unlike Paul, uh, to once again remind us, this life is not all. This life is short. I still go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when, when, when God, before any of his missionary journeys started, he took Paul up to the third heaven. And he said, look at this. This is what you have to do. You have this much time. Your life is a little dot on the timeline here. But this is where you're going. This is what you're doing it for. Now go back there and do it in the light of what you see up here. That's what that chapter is all about. I have three Ps to keep these things right in this point. Number one, perspective. Do you know what it's all about? Do you have the right perspective? Number two is perspective. Number three is perspective. Do we, do we understand why we're here and what we're doing here and how, how insignificant this time is that we have to serve compared to eternity? This is all we have, and you don't get it again. So keep that perspective and keep that thought before you that not only do we serve God on this earth, we will serve Him in heaven one day forever. Now, as you glance down to the rest of this chapter, what you'll also see is that in verses 17 and 18, Paul uses himself as an example. And then in, beginning in verse 19, he uses Timothy as an example. And then beginning in verse 25, he uses Epaphroditus as example. So he's going to hold up himself and two other great men as examples so that the, the people in Philippi can follow them and follow these good men who are their leaders. And I say, folks, get your own name on that list too. I mean, be someone that others can follow. Be someone that your children, your grandchildren can follow. Be someone that when you go on to meet the Lord, someone will say, I can do that too. I can serve the Lord too perspective. Keep that in mind. All right. There we have this passage on uh, what we do, how we keep the mind of Christ uh, in this world as we walk through it. Stand now with me, if you will, as we think about these things. We will sing a song of invitation. We'll let the Lord speak to our hearts as he will. As we're standing, let's go to him in prayer. Now, Father, thank you for these words, familiar words, and yet how we need them, how we need to be reminded of them. We know, Father, that to have the mind of Christ is a difficult thing, a hard thing for us in, with this sinful nature that we have and in this body of flesh that we have. But Father, our prayer before you today is that you would turn us into these kind of believers. Help us, Father, to be saints who are sanctified. 
Help us to be like Christ, having the mind of Christ. And I pray, Father, that we would not be discouraged, that though things may have come into our lives uh, that have turned us, Father, help us to now confess those things before you and walk that path that is pleasing to you for the rest of our lives. Help us, Father, to do it now. And I, I pray, Father, that we would be uh, children of God and lights of God in this world. So bless as we sing this song. Speak to our hearts in the way that we need. Be pleased with what we do. May you receive the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. We always sing a song of invitation. I'm always at the front. Uh, if you want to come even as we're singing uh, with your need, let's go to the Word of God and take care of that. Or after we're dismissed this morning, uh, still, you do what the Lord is leading you to do this morning. Gordon's going to come and lead us in a song of invitation.